If you're an entrepreneur, you've worked hard to start your business. Share your story of how we can change the world with people making a difference every day by partnering with the Permaculture Podcast. Take the next step and find out more by contacting show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. To celebrate the release of Pascal Baldar's new book, Wildcrafted Fermentation, this and the next episode are about his earlier works, The New Wildcrafted Cuisine and The Wildcrafting Brewer. As this episode comes out, all three books are on sale at chelseagreen.com. Thanks to our friends at Chelsea Green, I am also giving away a copy of Pascal's Wildcrafted Fermentation. You'll find that giveaway at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. You'll find links to that giveaway, Pascal's author page, and more in the show notes. As you'll hear coming up, Pascal's book, The New Wildcrafted Cuisine, and my conversation with him, really pushes the edge of what I would normally consider a forgeable edible. It was interesting because many of the things that I've eaten from my yard or elsewhere are relatively safe. Granted, the amount of experience that I have with foraging is limited. But even then, they're the kinds of things that you find in just about any foraging book or an introductory class. And what I really like is that Pascal, in his book and in this conversation, gets into some things that kind of push those edges, including harvesting edible sugars and starches from insects, essentially insect poop, as well as some of the things that he's collecting from the forest, such as decomposed leaves and duff to include his flavoring in what it is that he's creating. Now then, on to Pascal. I'll join you again afterwards. Then, Pascal, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to write the new Wildcrafted Cuisine, and we can take the conversation from there? Yes, so my my background, I'm actually from Belgium, and uh, I grew up in a really small town. We're talking like 1,000 people. So I spent my youth pretty much in the woods, so I was always interested by wild food. And we also kind of grew, like the 19th century, we had like an old farm and we were raising on chicken, rabbits. Uh, we had the garden. So wild food was just another thing that would be added to the regular diet, pretty much. I moved to California in 1986, actually to New York and then to California. And then I went back to studying wild plants in the late 90s and then went from there. And then did you have a background in biology or forestry or anything like that that took you back to the woodlands? Or was it just a personal interest that drew you back? It was definitely a personal interest. I actually did study for like a year um, plants. It was kind of like a special, uh, how to say, school where you study biology. But uh, I wanted to be actually some kind of a ranger, but I ended up studying how to farm. And I was not very interested to, do, to know how to farm, so I basically stopped after a year. And really the knowledge that I learned about wild food in Belgium was from the elders. You know, the old people still knew what was edible, what you could eat. And as a kid, you spend all your time in the forest, so you pick up like hazelnut, walnuts, you know, stinging nettles, and all kinds of different you know, wild plants. It's fun. 
I spent much of my youth going through the woodlands of, of Western Maryland with my friends and things, but we were always kind of pushed away from eating anything that we found. By that point, I don't know what it was, but there seemed to be an aversion to having children just eat whatever it was that they would run across. And so we would get called home for lunch, or if we were going out for a long day, we'd be sent off and packed with food. Right. I only think of a couple of times that we would eat some nuts or berries or things, but they're all things that we knew really well. It's, it's because it's being lost uh, a little bit. You know, there is a, a generation gap. In, I think in one generation, at least in Belgium, uh, you know, the elders just didn't pass along that information because everybody was buying things at the store, really. But if you think about it, I would say like, you know, 80% of what you see in nature can be used for culinary use. I'm not just talking about berries and plant, but also barks. For example, barks were used to make bitter beer in the old days. Bark can be used for medicinal use, you know, edible flowers and all kinds of different stuff. And that's one of the things that really stood out for me in reading your book is that you push the the edge of what I would think of as edible. And it's been an interesting progression because I started with the works of Sam Thayer. And what he presented was more of the kinds of things that I was used to encountering, a lot of your greens and leafy vegetables and roots and things. And then it was Dina Falcone's Foraging and Feasting, where she talked more about these culinary uses of things. And now with your book, it's, I don't just think of it as like wildcrafted cuisine. It's almost wild cuisine with what you're presenting that we can use, that we can find around us. Well, it's pretty much, you know, what I did is for five years, I really started to explore really deep what could be used or how you could create a cuisine that represent the terroir, I mean, the land that you live in. The book is, you know, I'm, I live in Southern California, but really the book is not really about Southern California. It's really a, um, a book of ideas and concepts on what you can do with wild plants or the terroir, the land around you. So it's how to make beer, how to make wine, how to make your own vinegar, how to pickle, how to make spice blends. You know, it's basically 400 pages of idea, really. You know, hot sauce, fermentation. I'm just flipping through my own book as I, walk, as I talk. I open it up as well because you have are making soda with fruit juices. The piece that really got me, in addition to like barks and twigs and things, is when you start talking about, uh, let me see if I can find it, because you have the, the sand fleas and wood shrimp and garden snails. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh my God, there is a whole universe to be explored there if you wanted to go into insect. I, I barely touched anything on it. I started doing it really at the end of the book, but uh, this is a whole thing in itself, you know, edible insect, which, you know, in the past were actually used, you know, not very much in Europe, but if you go to different cultures, South America, uh, Asia, I mean, I think 60% of the world actually eat insects, but we love completely this this knowledge, mostly, I think, in uh, North America, like the sand fleas, you know, it, uh, a lot of Hispanic people are still picking them up on the side of the beach and use that for flavoring soup. And for how many times that I've seen them at the beach but never thought that I could use them in that way. Yeah, but you know, interestingly enough, as a, you know, when you study really uh, edible wild plant and, and wild crafting, you actually learn so much about things that are not too good either. For example, pollution, you know, living in Los Angeles, if I wanted to get those guys, I basically have to travel for like two and a half hours before I can even pick them up due to, to uh, pollutions. I, I mean, I would never go to the beach in Los Angeles and pick them up, for example. We also have all the farm runoff coming just north of California. So we actually have, um, how do you call that, um, toxic 
toxins from uh, algae due to the farm runoff. So you learn all this stuff too. It's interesting, fascinating. Makes you sad sometimes too. <laughs> well, and it was in reading the section on garden snails then, you know, making sure that you feed them a clean diet for several days before you eat them. And I imagine that that would also be part of your selection then, not only, you know, to tend them afterwards to make sure that they're going to be a delectable edible, but as you say, making sure that you're selecting from spaces that are clean and safe yeah. and the decisions that you have to make in order to do so. Absolutely. In your exploration of wild foods, why did you choose to include what you did in the book? Was there a particular theme that you were going for in introducing people to these ideas? Or was it because each of these different foods that you chose presented part of this spectrum of ideas? It's really a spectrum of ideas. And to be honest, when I started looking at the book, I basically had 1,200 pages. So I had to cut down my publisher, Chelsea Publishing, was going, that's probably a bit too much. And if you take a look at it, it's not a spectrum of wild plants. It's really a spectrum of what you can do with a wild plant. So instead of going really for the wild plant, I actually went for to the processes, like how you can make fermentation, sodas, beer. So it was, I, I took a, a basically, it's really not a, how to say a plant identification book. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not something for somebody who wants to learn wild plant. But it's a good book for somebody who wants to learn what they can do with a wild plant. And not just only wild plant, but, you know, I mean, you're into permaculture. So with the, the herbs that you're actually growing and looking at the book, too, you can start growing some herbs, herbs like mugwort, if you want to, or sages and all kinds of different stuff. And that's where you provide things like the strong, medium or mild woods if someone wants to use them for something that it's kind of a broad survey and then once you're able to select what you're looking for then you have all those techniques like roasting or smoking with woods or charring something to flavor a vinegar yes exactly exactly so it's really a book of processes if you think about it it's not really a book about plant itself although you do use the plant but you know flavoring vinegar you can do the same technique you know probably with like 100 different plants Making wine, you know, you can take, I mean, on my side, I have the recipe for uh, elderberry wine, which you find everywhere, but you can also use that to a wild currant. You can do the same, probably a similar recipe. So you, you basically get basic recipe that you can play with. And I guess that's where it's separate for me that when I was reading through this, I was reading it more like a wild foods cookbook because of the way that it was laid out with the different seasons and thinking about what the particular plants were that I would find here right. and not looking at it as broadly as it as it's been developed? Well, I guess you can see it from different viewpoints. I study a lot of uh, traditional and modern preservation technique. So it's really, the book is kind of between a plant identification book, a foraging book, and a chef book. And I'm kind of like this between land where you're basically teaching people how to create condiments and gourmet condiments, but using a lot of wild plants. And that's where you get into things like your shrub recipe or your vinegar recipe. That's correct. And then you get some crazy stuff inside, like, you know, the rosin baked potatoes, for example. <laughs> and that's, I'm trying to remember the one recipe that I found that I wanted to ask you about, that it's a, a sugar that you harvest from insects. It's something that they exude. Yes. That you made a soda from or a, a beer. I'm trying to find I've, it. I've actually made a brew from it. So this is interesting. So in California, we have a lot of eucalyptus trees. And they're pretty much all invasive, really. They're not native. But when they planted it, uh, the little pest, which is a little fly, like a silid, actually came with the trees. 
So what they do is they actually put put a little egg on the leaves and there is a little insect that grows called a lerp, which actually suck the sap from the tree and poop sugar. It's on page, uh, I can give you the page actually, it's page 210. I can hear you flipping. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, there it is, the, the sacred lerp sugar fermented drink. Yes. <laughs> and I call it sacred because you, as I say, you have to be... Uh, kind of different the head to try to attempt something like that <laughs> but it's it was fascinating and that was an experience of actually you know going into an environment and create a drink fermented drink or boozy fermented drink out of nothing and uh, i'm you know i do explain in the book it's not it was not a fantastic drink but it will do, it will do the job if you wanted to fill something out of it uh, beautiful drink by the way it looks like milk it was fascinating but you know a friend of mine was a, um, a renowned bartender uh, or mixologist they call, they call themselves uh, actually used it for making cocktails but it was a fascinating experience and it's actually you know it's composed of 60% or well, actually kind of like 50% sugar and 50% starch the, the sugar and so it was actually aborigines food in Australia and they used to pick up that sugar and compress it to make a type of uh, power bar that they would use if they were traveling, you know, as a quick energy. But people would, people would never think of this. This, I mean, as you look at the tree, you go, what the hell is that? You know, it's just a bunch of white on the leaves. But if you dehydrate it, it's absolutely delicious. It's like a Captain Crunch kind of flavor a little bit. It's beautiful on dessert, you know, when you serve it on dessert. How did you discover the lerp? And the sugar. When I started learning about local wild plant in the late 90s, I probably did 400 classes uh, with all kinds of people, from native people to survivalists to botanists to anybody who could teach me something. Sometimes I would even go to the market, the uh, ethnic market, and if somebody was picking up a type of wild plant in the ethnic market, I would actually offer them and pay them to actually take me home and cook with it so I could learn something. So I was a bit extreme, like I wanted to learn, learn, learn. And I remember doing a class, uh, I think it may have been with Christopher Nairges, who is a wild food expert, local wild food expert. And he basically showed me that during a class, but he didn't do anything with it. So basically for me, it was, wow, sugar, wild sugar. So I started to experiment with it and uh, it's fantastic. I mean, from a survival point of view, I can see, you know, Christopher uh, teach more like survival. So it, in mine, my approach is culinary. So for me, it was a fascinating ingredient. For him, it may not have been that interesting, for example. So it's, it's because I look at it from a different viewpoint. I, something that's tiny like that, that not a lot of people will pay attention to becomes the most fascinating ingredient. Are there any other ingredients like that that you came across that were really a surprise? Ants. Some some ants have an incredible flavor, like they taste between lemon and vinegar. That was fascinating. I had no idea. Some taste, some taste really bad too, by the way. <laughs> you have to go through a selection process. But that was fascinating to me. I actually learned that from uh, um, was rest, uh, from Mexico. They actually eat uh, ants, and several restaurants, like top restaurants, actually serve ants right now. You have uh, Noma in Denmark, uh, Dome, D-O-M in uh, South America, and it's part of the food they offer. So I, I don't have any preconceived idea if something is edible. 
I'm interested to experiment with it and see if it is uh, you know, something that can be turned into something that's interesting culinary-wise. I've done a lot of bad stuff, by the way, in the beginning when I started experimenting. Oh, my God. Yeah. But as you go along, you learn flavor profile of different plants and fruits and nuts and roots. And over, over time, you start to make some interesting stuff. Where did the love of the culinary side of plants come in? A lot of folks I know who come to this are looking for something that they can just eat. But you're really working on elevating this beyond just something that's edible to almost kind of a form of high cuisine. So I was very lucky. When I grew up in Belgium, my mom and dad were absolutely incredible cooks. So my dad was experimenting a lot with wild uh, games, he, you know, rabbits and quails and all kinds of different stuff. And my mom was just an incredible cook and, and they were cooking everything from awful to, you know, and we had a beautiful garden. We had all rabbits and all kinds of different stuff. So I think that's where the love for, for flavor came from. And then in the late 90s, when I went back to wild food or learning about local plants, when I did class with survivalists, because a lot of the class about wild food actually don't very often by survivalists or people interested in survival, all those flavors were there, but very often the dish they were making were not fantastic. Good example will be uh, black mustard. Black mustard is probably one of the most invasive plants we have around here. And the flavor is like wasabi. And, uh, you know, I, I remember doing a class and somebody actually put the flowers into a vinegar and it was frankly not that good. But then I eat the flowers themselves and I had this burst of flavor and I was going like, wow. And I think that was the point where I had this big eureka moment is that we were surrounded, surrounded by incredible flavor, but nobody was doing anything with it really in terms of culinary use. And that became my obsession. It was like, truly an obsession of researching how can we use those flavor from the land itself that are not being used in any way, shape or form. It's changed, by the way. I mean, in the last seven years, now it's become very trendy, you know, to, uh, you know, love the top restaurant in the world, actually really experimenting with foraged ingredients. So it has changed. And a lot of chefs have done a lot of those research too. But at the time, I don't know if a lot of people who were really going deep into what you can do with all those plants. And from my exposure, here where I am in central Pennsylvania, we don't have a lot of that. We don't have a lot of those kinds of chefs and restaurateurs that I'm aware of. You know, you may have a farm to table event that has a little bit here, a little bit there, but it's primarily like flowers and greens in a salad. It's not really being brought onto the table as a main course or a main flavor profile. To be honest, it's pretty much the same thing in Southern California. I've worked with some of the top chefs in Southern California, but it's not... You know, the wild food is mostly used as a kind of a decoration. And actually, 90% or even more than that of what I used to bring them was actually non-native. They're more interested into green flavor and decoration. And they, do, they will not even know what to do with some of the sage and strong flavor that we have locally. It's more strong towards Sacramento, San Francisco, and New York. And uh, I was recently, I was in Vermont, and there's a whole restaurant that is really going deep into their local flavors. Uh, and the chef used to work at Noma, too, uh, the restaurant in Denmark, where if you take a look, by the way, at uh, it's called Nordic Cuisine. And Nordic Cuisine is really based on their local ingredients and the local land. So it was basically rediscovering their own culinary identity by looking at their own land and say, what can I do with it? 
And from my exposure to wild foods, I'm really fascinated by them because a lot of the bitters and the sour kind of flavors that exist there that I don't necessarily find in like regular garden variety foods, if you will. That's correct. And uh, it, I think bitter has come a little bit out of uh, favors, but there is some tremendous thing you can do. For example, mugwort. It's a plant that's used in uh, Asian cuisine, mostly in Korean cuisine. Uh, but it's not used anymore or not a lot in North America. But it's a fantastic herb for making beer, for example, which you can then use for cooking. But also it goes extremely well with sauce that are sugary, like made with berries, for example. It really gives like a kick of, uh, of flavors. So there's tremendous thing you can do, you know, even with bitter flavor, if you basically manage to balance that bitterness with a sugar source. Uh, soda would be a good example too. So like a mugwort soda? Yeah, we've done mugwort. Uh, one of the soda that I used to make is a blueberry with a mugwort. And it's all an exercise in moderation. Of course, if you put too much, it's way too much. It becomes too bitter, but done properly, it's fantastic. Ice, ice, ice cream, for example, is a good, you know, making an ice cream. Uh, we had a local chef who made ice cream with mugwort and with California sagebrush, which are very bitter. But because you have so much sugar in the ice cream, it was a fantastic balance. It tasted awesome. I'm, I'm a sucker for ice cream. Ah, so. yeah. <laughs> Same thing with popsicle, by the way, if you're a sucker for popsicle. So it's really a matter of looking at a flavor profile and start looking like, what can I do with it? So it's a, you know, there's a whole experimental process that you have to go through. And also sometimes you know, using something like fermentation will change completely the flavor profile. So you can, and then something that doesn't taste fantastic through fermentation can taste awesome. You get the most incredible surprise. What have been some of your favorite surprises over the years as you've been exploring these foods and these different techniques? Pine needles, white fur, uh, you know, the, a lot of the flavor that you find in mountains, I never knew what to do with it. And I completely fell in love with them. Uh, and it was just all a matter of experimenting, you know, like for example, the white fur, using white fur and make a soda with it with pine needle. It's just, it's like tasting the mountain. It's piney, it's, but it's not overwhelming. It's got a lot of citrus quality to it, even tangerine. I was, I was just completely floored by, by the, uh, the flavor that you get, you know, using our California juniper berries, for example, was fantastic too. You know, actually you use them when they're unripe instead of ripe because unripe for me, they have actually more flavor. They're also a fantastic source of uh, wild yeast. They're actually loaded with wild yeast. So you can use the wild yeast to actually make your beer. So you, you can go really, really deep. If you think about it, you know, you can make a beer with wild plants or a brew. Sometimes I don't even call them a beer because technically I don't use hops and grains. But you can make a wild brew with local plants. Then you can use the local yeast to actually brew that one. So you basically using the plant and the bacteria to actually create that beer, which you can then use to actually cook game that you find in the environment like quails or uh, rabbits, for example. Uh, but you, go, you can go even deeper and you can actually turn the beer that you made with the local plant and yeast and turn it into vinegar using a local acetic bacteria. And I explain the book where I do it, which is the infamous fruit flies method. Because the fruit flies have actually the acetic bacteria on their body who will turn the vinegar, you know, any beer into vinegar, which is why people who make beer are, make beer are scared shitless of fruit flies. 
But that was fascinating. I didn't know that. And very often, you know, even people making beer, they don't know why they scare shitloads of fruit flies, but they know they are. But it's because it turns your beer into vinegar. And you can make gourmet vinegar using, I mean, it becomes 100% full terroir, like made from the land. Fascinating stuff for me. The deepest connection to made from the land is what you refer to as the forest floor. Yeah. And that mixture of grasses and leaves and other things. How did you arrive at using that as a flavoring profile? So that started by just walking around in the forest by, you know, just falling in love with the smell. Mostly in the morning or after the rain, you get this incredible smell. And I completely got inspired to actually try to reproduce what I was actually smelling in time and, and and say, what can I do that would actually reproduce that into flavor? You know, it was just, it was musky, it was green, there was so much quality to it. And I started experimenting by looking at some of the edible uh, aromatic plants around the environment and started to make blend of it. And my first blend, and you're talking like this can be a little bit extreme, but you're talking about tree leaves and mugwort and grass sweet clover, mushrooms, all kinds of different stuff. I started to make blend out of it, and my first blend were terrible. You know, it didn't work very well, but there was a hint that it could work. And over the months and the years, I started to create blends using all kinds of different stuff, barks, and ended up creating blends that were very delicious in the proper use, for example, for cooking fruits or, or cooking with beer and stuff like that. Some of the blend, blend can include like up to 18 plants. Let me see, I think I have one right there. And in that one, I even have to, you know, I, I have to take a look at my own book because sometimes I, I forget myself, the own, the, my own recipes. It's a good book for myself too. So, but I look at it like I have uh, uh, fig leaves, I have uh, willow leaves that are a little bit bitter, I have grass, I have a little bit of black sage, I have turkey tail mushroom. So it's really a blend of all kinds of different things. And that's what was fascinating to me was to see how all of these come together. In particular, the recommendation to use uh, decomposing leaves. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I don't think of leaves like that as something to include in food. But you know, the origin of that is actually uh, primitive cooking. When I used to do survival classes, uh, it's pit cooking. And where you were doing pit cooking, you basically just put a layer of hot rock uh, and then you put a layer of herb and then you put your meat or your vegetable that you want to eat and then you put another layer of herbs and it's basically you steaming the thing inside. And, you know, when I started doing those class, survival classes in the, 80, the 90s, sorry, I suddenly realized that some of this stuff could have incredible flavor, but they were using leaves and grass and, you know, whatever what was cattle leaves, you know, whatever was what was available in the environment to actually steam the content of, inside the pit. And that's where the idea came from, to actually start using those blends, you know. I'm not the only one. I saw a guy, um, was it in uh, Norway or Sweden, called uh, Faviken, and he actually does the same thing. He goes in his own forest and also cook with uh, leaves, if I recall, autumn leaves. So much more research and so many things for me to try. And thankfully, with this book, you've provided so much to really make that accessible. And it's not nearly as foreign 
now that I've looked through it and had the conversation with you, to start exploring locally what these other options are, because I'm fortunate, at least here in central Pennsylvania, that we have a lot of a lot of foraging and other wild food folks. And now it's let's seeing let's see how we can push that a bit further. I just came back from Vermont, and it was amazing. In a few days, I was able to learn enough that we actually make the most the most incredible dinner and even beer using their local ingredients, just following the principle of that book. So it's not just Southern California; it's pretty much a book of ideas and concepts. Yeah, and we have quite a few of the things that you list as forages either available directly in our woods or through people who are tending the wild um, and have brought them into where they are. I've really enjoyed this conversation and kind of the tour through your book and your thoughts of putting it together. As always, though, I like to provide a space at the end of an interview for any final thoughts that you might have to share with the listeners. So final thought, I want to talk about two things. So there is foraging or wildcrafting, but wildcrafting for me is a bit different than foraging. Wildcrafting also includes the idea of sustainability and taking care of, you know, the land that you're taking from. So it's not just about taking, but it's also about giving. So, you know, I didn't talk too much about in the book, but it's definitely, you know, if you take, you must give too. And it's, uh, you know, you have to achieve a type of harmony and balance with the land. So if you take planted, you know, uh, right now I'm also working on the idea of or concept of wild food garden, where I'm starting to plant on private properties or the different plants that I collect. Uh, and the idea is really as a good wild crafter is that you give more than you take, which is very different from uh, commercial foraging. And I think commercial foraging can be a problem too. Like, you know, you, I see it with ramps. I see it with uh, a lot of mushrooms, which are very trendy right now. So it's a different approach. It's, you know, taking care of the land. There's a fantastic book that exists called Tending the Wild, which was really my inspiration. I'm very familiar with Kat Anderson's book, and she and I have spent some time speaking together. And I'm waiting for her to retire so we can do an interview about that idea. Fantastic book. It was really an incredible inspiration. So that would be another resource for anybody who's interested in these ideas to gain an understanding and a respect for going into the wild and selecting edibles and other culinary herbs and spices. Yes. And also, I mean, the, it's tough in California because, I mean, most of my foraging is actually done on private land. Because, for example, the Angeles Forest, you need to have a permit. Uh, BLM land, you, you can actually pick up stuff for your own use, but it's not... You know, and in park, the same thing, you cannot pick up. So it's, you know, the regulation are different. I know in Vermont, it's much more open. Like nobody will blink if you uh, pick up berries. So, And that's something for folks to be aware of, because here in Pennsylvania, last I checked at least, you can forage for mushrooms and berries and all kinds of things on our very prolific state game lands. So if you're out there going for a deer or a rabbit or something, you can be picking up some plants along the way. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation, because this is one of the books that really does make these foods that are so prevalent and all around us more accessible and something that we can readily include on our plate. So thank you for not only our time today, but also writing the book and bringing this to so many people. You're very welcome. Thank, thank you, too. And that was Pascal Baldar. You can find out more about him at urbanoutdoorskills.com which is part of his quest to reconnect with nature and discover the flavors of Southern California. On there, you'll also find a class schedule as well as an opportunity for private classes with him. I really wish that I was in Southern California because he's one of the folks who, in these conversations, I'd really like to go explore with. So if you've taken a class with him or are in the area 
and have an opportunity to, please let me know what it's like. His book is beautiful and well-written. The conversation that we had today was informative and fun. And well, I really like his accent as we sat down and talked about all this. And I really think that he's doing something to push the edge of what it means to eat forageable foods and turns it from just something that nourishes our body to also something that can feed our community, not just physically, but also socially and bring us together and connect us over food. Something that my family has seen as valuable for my entire life to come together and eat with one another. And here we can do it with food that comes from the place where we're at, that isn't just acquired from a grocery store. And we can have a real sense of what it means to eat locally. With that, I find that this conversation with Pascal also has me re-examining what we can do as permaculture practitioners to make perennials more palatable to people and more accessible to want to cook and eat with and in communicating with people that it's more than just learning how to eat something, but also how to make it a part of our lives, to have recipes and traditions around something. As we move towards eating more seasonally through farmer's markets and things, you know, that helps change what we eat and when, but what about really digging into what it is that we're eating and not just focusing on annuals, but focusing on perennials, those things that come out of a food forest, to have celebrations and festivals around them, like what... Brad Lancaster suggested in holding his Mesquite Festival in the American Southwest, what can we do where we are with what we have? For me in Pennsylvania, I think about elderberries. They're something that's native to this region, and I have some recipes for them, but I've never thought about cooking them and having people over and sharing them. Is that a place where we can have potlucks and skillshares to connect with folks and bring them in? As we work on being part of a broader movement of movements and connecting with others who are doing good work that's not necessarily just permaculture, but things that are related to it, like the slow food movement. What about finding those festivals and going and setting up a tent and cooking some things and sharing them? And in that, sharing the message of permaculture and this big umbrella that we have that encompasses so many things. If you're interested in foraging and wild foods, I really do recommend picking up a copy of Pascal's book, setting it on your coffee table because it is that kind of a gorgeous book full of techniques, you can spark some conversations with it. From here, if there's any time that you'd like to get in touch with me, definitely feel free to drop me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, call me, 717-827-6266, or if you want to, drop something in the mail. I really do like getting letters from folks. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. And from here, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.